It is good to see you all this morning. Welcome back to Community Church. We are a skeleton crew, but that's all right. We're going to get through this. We're going to get into the Word of God and hopefully get the Word of God into us. Um, just a word of warning. Um, at the outset, as I've mentioned before, uh, most of the week I was sick. Uh, Chris was sick as well, so my prep time was like a roller coaster, a little bit here, a little bit there. Uh, it was mostly with brain fog and highly medicated. So um, my apologies on the outset of this message here. So hopefully if, if, I, if I mess up, just let me know. Hopefully we won't do too bad. But in our previous passage, we seen Christ unveil the future last week, um, which was fascinating. But what we're going to see this morning, in addition to him celebrating the last Passover and instituting the first Lord's Supper, which is going to be primarily what we look at this morning, we're going to begin to see Christ fulfill the feasts of Israel. Now, we're not going to have a whole lot of time to get into that this morning. It is a fascinating study, and we're going to try to make some time to explain just how he does that, how Christ fulfills the feasts in our next message in Luke's gospel. So hopefully you can be here for that. But this morning, we're going to focus on Christ's transition from the old covenant to the new covenant in his blood. And we're going to be in Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 23, if you'd like to follow along in your Bibles. Pray with me again quickly, and we'll get into the text. We are thankful, Lord, to be here this morning. Thankful again for another cool morning, more rain on the way. And we're just grateful for a nice, cool, wet summer that you've given to us here. We thank you, Lord, again for this place to gather and for those who are gathered here, we pray for those who couldn't be here this morning and ask that you would bless them and help them to get well soon so that they can get back in fellowship with us. But as we get into your word, Lord, this morning, please help us to rightly divide it, to understand it and see how it applies directly to our life even today. And we ask this in Jesus name. Amen. So Luke chapter 22, starting in verse one, reads like this. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near which is called Passover. And the chief priest and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. Verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat. So they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room? where I may eat Passover with my disciples. Then he will show you a large furnished upper room. There make ready, verse 13. So they went and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. When the hour had come, he sat down, and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them, With fervent desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is finished, or excuse me, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Then they begin to question among themselves, which of them it was who would do this thing. All right. So if you'd like to do a comparison study of this passage, which I always recommend, uh, you can find it in all three of the remaining Gospels. You can see it in Matthew 26. You can find it in Mark 14 and also in John 11. But Luke, what he does here is he gives us sort of an overview in verses 1 through 6 on Christ's betrayer. You could call this the plot to kill Jesus. And then in verses 7 through 13 here, we see the preparation for the Passover. And in verses 14 through 23, he gives us some details concerning Christ's institution of the Lord's Supper the new covenant that's established in his blood. And so in one setting, what we have here is the last Passover and the first Lord's Supper. So the old type and the new reality is what we're looking at this morning based on Christ's sacrifice for the sins of the world. Starting in verse 1, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover. So this was such a big celebration that it was often combined into just one huge event, okay? So if you go back to Leviticus chapter 23, specifically verses 5 through 6, the Passover is on the 14th day of the first month. That's Nisan, and it begins at twilight. But the Feast of Unleavened Bread begins on the 15th day of the first month, so the following day, right? But then it extends actually for seven days beyond that into the 15th. And during this time, no leaven was to be eaten at all. Uh, Leaven is yeast, by the way, if you're not familiar with no leaven should be in the bread. But here what Luke does is he captures the entire feast by mentioning them both at the same time. Now we know that Passover looks back, back to the time that God set Israel free from Egyptian bondage, back to the central act of redemption in the Old Testament. So after having them sacrifice what would have been essentially the first Passover lamb way back then. Now, there were many lambs that were sacrificed, but there had to be a first one. And so what they would do is put that blood on the lintel above their head or down the doorposts uh, so that whenever the Lord would pass by, he would literally pass over them in the night, those who had blood on the doorposts and lintels of their home. That was the first Passover. You can read all about it in Exodus chapter 24. Okay, so in other words, they would be spared from death. But of course, the time of Passover, it also looked forward. In another sense, it typified the central act of redemption that we find in the New Testament as well, which is, of course, the cross of Christ, where the true and final Passover lamb, the sinless son of God, would be sacrificed for the sins of the entire world. But the meal consisted of three basic things. Essentially, you had the roasted lamb, You had the unleavened bread, and you had bitter herbs. And so the lamb was to be spotless. It had to be without blemish whatsoever. The bread had to be without yeast, you know, no leaven. So both of these aspects represent sinlessness and, of course, sacrifice. But the bitter herbs, they actually represented, they reminded them of the difficulties that they had as slaves. It reminded them of the wrath of the plagues, that the children of Israel suffered 
as a result of their slavery under Egyptian bondage. And so, of course, Christ is the perfect fulfillment of all three aspects of the Passover meal. Christ is the spotless, sinless Lamb of God. Christ is the bread of life, perfectly without sin in every way. And Christ is the one who suffered the bitter wrath of God toward our sin. So all of that typified our perfect, sinless Savior. Verse 2, And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. So Jerusalem would have absolutely been full of people at this time. I mean, upwards of more than a million by some estimations. And so here uh, we see the chief priests and the, and the scribes beginning to plot, but they were doing so behind the scenes. Because, I mean, if a Jewish revolution were to ever happen, then the Passover would have been the perfect time for that to happen. So they were behind the scenes. But you could also say that the chief priests and the scribes, they feared the people because they did not fear God at all. And so fear of people is, to me, it seems common among those who are far from God. And that's interesting. But for the believer, there's nothing for us to fear except for God. So it's, it's inverted. Their thinking is exactly backwards. But I find it interesting how those who are so afraid to die are so quick to want to kill. Did you see that? They sought to kill him, but they were afraid to die. They were afraid of the people. I guess misplaced fear, it truly does make cowards of us all. So we need to be careful what it is that we fear. I like what Solomon said after his great book, Ecclesiastes. He summed it all up in chapter 12, verse 13, like this. He said, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. And you'll remember Ecclesiastes is vanity of vanities, all is vanity, etc. He summed it up like this. He said, fear God, and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. That's a great way to sum that up. And so now at this point in the narrative here this morning, Christ's body would have been anointed at Bethany. This is where you pick it up in the gospel comparisons, okay? You can read about that in Mark 14, Mark 26, John 12, for example. Again, Luke is very abbreviated in his account here. So I would encourage you to go back and do your gospel comparison study for sure. Verse 3, Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. And so after more than three years of walking with Christ, think about that, three years of walking with Christ, at least Judas now will suddenly walk away from Christ. How frightening it is to know that somebody so close to Christ physically could still be so far away from him spiritually. I mean, they were tight for three to three and a half years. Think about it like this, guys. Nobody expected Judas to be the betrayer. Nobody expected that. I mean, he did all the things, the same things that they did. No doubt he preached the same gospel. No doubt uh, he performed many of the same miracles as all of the other disciples did. But listen to this. Peter tells us something very interesting in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. And I just have to wonder if Judas were not on Peter's mind when he wrote this. But here's what he said. He said, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. Wow. Judas was called, wasn't he? 
He was cold. I mean, after Christ spent an entire night in prayer, he chose Judas Iscariot as one of the 12 to be his apostles. That's, that's Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16. Judas was elected, no doubt about that, to be a disciple of Christ, yet he somehow later became a traitor. Why? I can only imagine it was because he failed to make his calling and his election sure, like Peter said. In other words, he didn't believe that Jesus truly was the Christ, like Peter did and the other disciples. But I want you to notice something about verse 3. Do you notice who the real enemy is here? It's Satan. Satan is the one that's behind all of this. Of course, we know that Satan has been the chief enemy of God for many, many years. But you'll remember, we studied this early on at the end of the wilderness temptation. You remember Satan left Jesus. But what did he say? What did Scripture say? He left Christ until a more opportune time, right? That was Luke 4.13. So guys, this was that time. This was the opportune time. Satan would now try to get Christ through one of his disciples. Interesting. Again, this is just an overview of what happened. I mean, Luke is drawing out the fact that Satan did enter Judas, but not the exact time that it happened, okay? Satan did not technically enter into Judas until after Christ had given Judas the bread at the supper. We picked that up in John 13, 27. So Judas received the bread, John 13, 30. Satan entered him, and then Judas went out immediately afterwards, okay? So think about that. What a picture of carnal Christianity. What a picture of cultural Christianity. Somebody who wants the benefits of Christ without a true belief in Christ. That's basically Judas. But essentially what Judas did was he passed over the body of Christ in exchange for having Satan enter into his body. How ironic. His rejection of Christ led him to being possessed by the devil, literally by Satan. This is very deliberate, okay? And it's worth noting that none of this was against Judas's will. Verse 4. So he went his way and he conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. Okay, so the plot had been set forth in verse 2. That's when they started plotting. Now we see that a plan is made here in verse 4. So at this point, you'll see in Matthew 26, we see that Judas is actually the one who went and suggested, uh, suggested rather money in exchange for Christ, in exchange for the betrayal. Okay, These were Judas's words to the chief priest. Here's what he said. What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? Amazing. You see, when faith and belief are absent, then greed will gladly step in and fill that void each and every time. So Judas is now trying to put a price on the head of the king of glory. Mark chapter 8, verse 37 says, Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Well, we're about to find out exactly what Judas thought about Christ, and moreover, what he thought about his own soul. Because honestly, it's not much. It's not that much when you think about it. But greedy people always tend to settle for lesser gods. Their impatience leads them into things that are much less than what God would prefer they have. Verse 5, And they were glad 
and agreed to give him money. So the price that they agreed upon was, you know it, 30 pieces of silver, right? We picked that up in Matthew 26, 15. How much was that? Well, that was the customary price for a slave. Exodus 21, 32. Not a great deal of money, but it does tell us what the Jews thought of Christ, doesn't it? The irony is that the one they hoped to purchase for the price of a slave would be the one that would actually set all of the captives free by his blood. We just learned in the story of the poor widow that the value that God puts on things, value in God's economy is determined by what's left, not by what's given, right? And so Christ gave his all. Christ gave everything. There was nothing left. He gave it all, demonstrating just lovingly and perfectly exactly what he thought about all of those people who in fact hated him. So you see the irony here. But all of this is a fulfillment of prophecy. We pick some of it up in Zechariah eleven thirteen, but it's all over the place. If you, if you go look and you'll find it. What we're learning is that God is proactive. Okay? God is not reactive. He knew who his betrayer would be the entire time, all along. Okay, Therefore, all of the plotting, all of the planning that was going on behind the scenes fit perfectly into the plan of God. All the way back from the foundation of the world, in fact. It fit perfectly into God's plan. You see, the cross of Christ was always plan A. There was never a plan B. It was never, I hope you guys don't sin and I, you know, no. The cross was always the plan. It was God's provision for the sin of man from the foundation of the entire world. Verse 6. So he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. Now, we know that this is going to literally happen in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's coming up later on in this same chapter. But the hope was to catch him outside of the city, you know, out from the crowds, so as to hopefully avoid this uprising of the people during the time of the Passover. But of course, we're going to see later on in this chapter and in the following chapter as well, just how quickly fear and the power of persuasion can influence the hearts and the minds and the opinions and even the actions of the people, including Christ's own disciples. Fear is a massive, massive thing, and we have to be careful that we don't misplace ours. So as believers, we do not have anything to fear except our God. Verse 7, Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. In other words, it must be sacrificed. And so this was the first day of the feast, According to Matthew six, or excuse me, Matthew twenty six seventeen, and Mark fourteen twelve. In other words, the day of unleavened bread coincided with Passover. All right, but the feast of unleavened bread would follow afterwards. Now remember, Jewish days were from sunset to sunset, but the Romans calculated their days from sunrise to sunrise. And so there is going to be some overlap here in the gospel narratives that can make the chronology of trying to figure some of this stuff out uh, pretty difficult to understand, okay? But keep in mind that you can have the same date, but it still be considered different days. And that's because of this overlap in how time was calculated. For example, John chapter 19, verse 14, calls Friday of this week, the day of preparation, which tells us that John was using the Roman means of calculating a day, okay? The day of preparation, it just simply meant that the Jews were preparing for Sabbath. It was a general 
term for each and every Sabbath. But when using the Jewish calculation of days like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, then we know without a doubt that Christ was crucified on the Passover. It would have been the same day as the day of preparation. In other words, you would have the same date, but they would be called different days depending on how you calculated that. All right? Confusing enough? <laughs> it can be, no doubt about it. But we do know that Christ was crucified on the Passover. How do we know that? We just read it, right? Verse 7, the Passover lamb must be killed on this day. Exactly. And Christ is the ultimate and true Passover lamb. And so as you read through all four of the gospel accounts here, the chronology can be confusing at times, but when you take into account the different calculations of when a day actually begins and when it ends and so forth, and use that Roman scale versus the Jewish scale, you have to take all of that into consideration. And, and it's hard, I get that. But when you do, then it does harmonize the gospels and keeps us uh, out of this idea of the Bible not making sense or contradicting itself. It actually doesn't contradict itself. It's just two different ways to keep time. Verse 8, And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat. And so Christ sends his men to prepare this Passover meal. Okay, so a lamb would have had to have been killed. It would have been roasted. It would have been eaten on this night. And this would have been, in effect, the very last Passover. Okay, and then Christ was going to explain the new covenant to them in his blood by instructing or instituting the very first Lord's Supper, which would soon be ratified, you could say. It would go into effect. It would be effectuated. The new covenant would be ratified by his blood on his cross. But I like something here that sticks out to me. I like the two disciples that Christ sent. He sent Peter and John, these two guys. One would soon deny him, and the other one would be the one who would call himself the disciple whom Christ loved. <laughs> These same two men, not too long from now, are going to have a foot race to the tomb, right? In John chapter 20, verses 3 through 4. And John's going to write about how much faster he is than Peter. <laughs> So you have both ends of the spectrum represented here in these two disciples. I like this because you might be someone who's like fast. You're quick on the trigger. You might be somebody who is faithful. John is considered to be faithful. You might be someone, though, who every now and then might drop a humble brag here and there. <laughs> the disciple whom Christ loved. Loved. Or you might be more like Peter. You might be slow on the uptake. It might be harder for you to grasp things. I, I can put myself in this category. It takes the Lord a while to teach me things sometimes. I have to learn them the hard way. There's times when you might be fearful. You might be like Peter. So you might find yourself in one of those two camps. But what I love about this is regardless of your personality, which one it resembles most, don't think for a minute that the Lord can't use you. Amen. He used both of these men. He can use each and every one of us sitting here in this room today. He can use us for his glory. He can use us to prepare his way. He sent these men out to prepare the way, the meal for him that he would institute, that he would celebrate. He sent these men out to proclaim his word. And so, 
He can use you. All of that to say, the Lord can use me and he can use you. We just have to step out in faith like Peter and John did. Verses 9 and 10. So they said to him, where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. All right, so Matthew 26, 18 tells us that Jesus told his disciples to say to this man, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And so, yeah, it's true that Christ could have prearranged all of this, you know, during a previous trip to Jerusalem. He had been there before. It's possible this guy was already a disciple of Christ and they had had this all prearranged. However, I do think it's also possible that the Lord, of course, knowing all things, simply described to his men what would happen in the future prophetically. That's very possible. Either way, this was a unique sign that they were to be looking for, okay? It was very unique. Peter and John were supposed to be looking for a man that was carrying a pitcher of water. That's significant because it would stand out to these guys. It would be unusual. Why would it be unusual? That's because the women were usually the ones who carried the water. It was the women. They carried the water. The guys sat back at home on the couch eating Cheetos watching football. But the guy or the women carried the water. So not much has changed, right? But I like what William McDonald said. He said, McDonald's. That's right, Ollie. William McDonald said, The man here makes a good picture of the Holy Spirit who leads seeking souls to the place of communion with the Lord. I really love that word picture. Let me read that again. This guy carrying the water is a good picture of the Holy Spirit because he's leading souls into a place of communion with God. So just as the Holy Spirit leads us into communion with Christ, this man who was carrying the water that day would lead Christ's men into this place of communion with him as well. Verse 11. Then you shall say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? So this room, if you think about it, it could have been rented out to other people. No doubt. I mean, the, the city was full of people coming in from all over. And so maybe he could have rented it out to somebody who was traveling into town for the Passover. Seems likely. There was probably not that many rooms available to stay in because it was so full. But it wasn't. It was actually reserved, wasn't it? This room was reserved and furnished for the teacher. Christ was the guest of honor here in this man's home. But I want you to notice a, di- a dichotomy. It's interesting. Remember back to our study way back at the beginning of Luke when we studied Christ's first advent, when he came into the world. Remember, there was no room for him in the inn, right? No room. That's Luke chapter 2, verse 7. But now here at the end of his earthly ministry, he has a place that's been reserved for him. There's an upper room. It's large. It's furnished. It's even better than a guest room. You see, because that word for inn, there was no room in the inn, that word in Luke 2, 7, is the same word here for guest room in Luke 22. It's the exact same word, kataluma. 
So the application for me is this. What room have I reserved for Christ? I mean, have I reserved Christ my best room? The big one that's furnished, that's special, where a guest of honor would stay? Or did I reserve the guest room? You know, you see the point I'm trying to make. There were two rooms. And the one that was reserved for Christ was not just the guest room. It was the upper room. It was the one that was furnished. It was special. Verse 12. Then he will show you a large furnished upper room. There make ready. So one person had no room for Christ at the beginning of his ministry. And the other person at the end of his ministry gave his best room for Christ. So where do I fall along that scale of selfishness and surrender? I mean, would I have taken opportunity here to make a little extra money during the Passover on this room and rent it out to some people? Or would I have made room for my Messiah? Even now, do I offer Christ my best or do I offer him whatever's left? But these men, they're going to receive the Last Supper in an upper room, the last Passover and the first Lord's Supper. And then later, they're going to receive the Holy Spirit of God in an upper room. Acts chapter 1, verse 12. And so in this upper room here, they're going to receive communion. But in the upper room that's coming, they're going to receive the comforter. Very cool stuff in John 14, 26, verse 13. So when they went and found, and found it, just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. Amen. So just as we've seen before, things are always just as Christ says they're going to be. Okay, everything was exactly like Christ said. But next, in verse 14, Luke says something very interesting. He says, when the hour had come, he sat down in the 12 apostles with him. So notice something here. Christ is always prepared. Christ is always patient. In other words, Christ does nothing before it's time. Nothing. He waits until the hour has come. Christ's timing is always perfect. You should take hope in that as a believer. His purpose. Remember, since he set his face toward Jerusalem way back in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, his purpose was to make it to this hour. And this hour had finally come. His enemies, they tried to throw him off a cliff. Why didn't that work out? His hour had not yet come. That's Luke 4.29. You remember that on the way, Christ, they tried to stone him. John 11, verse 8. Why didn't that work out for them? Because his hour had not yet come. But now the hour had come. And so he sits down with his 12 apostles. Christ had made it to the hour that he knew was coming all along. He had made it to that hour that he had set his face toward so many months ago or weeks ago or however long it was. Matthew tells us that the time we're studying here happened in the evening, but I want you to just imagine what must have been going through the mind of our Savior at this point as he sat down with these men and he was about to explain the fulfillment of the Passover to them. I mean, for centuries, the Jewish people, centuries, the Jewish people had celebrated their salvation from slavery through the blood of a spotless lamb. Year after year, sacrifice after sacrifice. And now Christ, 
is about to begin to reveal his own suffering to them, his own sacrifice, if you will, as the Lamb of God who would die once for all for the sins of the entire world so that whoever would believe on him would be saved and set free from their sin. And so I don't want us to miss the eternal significance of this hour. It's eternally significant. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, he said, For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Amen. Look, the law was a ministry of condemnation. Okay, you can look at the law as a ministry of condemnation. That's 2 Corinthians 3, 9. But it showed us our sin. Okay, so the sacrifice of Christ is now a ministry of righteousness. Why? Because it provides the provision for our sin. That's the difference. And all of those who will turn to Christ by faith will have the veil of their heart removed. That's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3.16. And they will actually receive the Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Lord. And then he goes on to tell us that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. Amen. 2 Corinthians 3.17. So truly an eternally significant hour had come upon the face of redemptive history. They've celebrated their entire lives being set free from Egyptian bondage. And Christ is here saying, I'm here to set you free from your sin. You're no longer a slave to it. You don't have to say yes to it anymore. You can resist it and say no through the blood of Christ and the power of the Spirit in you that I will give you because this is the spirit of liberty. Amen. Verse 15. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So think about it. Out of all of the 32 or so Passovers that the Lord had celebrated up until this point, this was the one that he fervently desired to eat. This was the supper before his suffering. One being symbolic of the other, obviously. But now it was time to sort of, as Scripture says, purge out the old leaven. That was the hour that had come. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 through 8 says, Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. Right? If Christ sets you free, you're free indeed. Amen. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Amen. So now, what takes place here, again, guys, we are skipping over a ton of stuff in Luke's gospel here. So I just really want to make the point, it would be worth your time to go back and do the comparison study. In fact, John chapter 13 through 17 happens at this point in our narrative. And they give us a lot of detail, the conversations that Christ had with his disciples at this point in history. He's beginning to prepare them for his death and the coming Holy Spirit, the coming persecution that each and every one of them would face as his followers. And so in one sense, Christ is now beginning to pass the torch on to his disciples his disciples are going to be entrusted to take the message of the gospel into the entire world. And you, you can read about all of that in John chapter 13 through 17. But here in our passage, he's preparing them for his own suffering. He's preparing his disciples for his own passion, his death. 
that would result in their redemption. Verse 16. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is finished, or excuse me, fulfilled. I've messed that up twice today. I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And I like this. Think about that. It, it appears to me that Christ prefers to dine in person. I think that's beautiful. Face to face. Across the table, if you will, in a very personal way. In other words, he's not going to partake of this supper during the time between his two advents. All right. So here we also see a promise. What's the promise? He's coming. He's coming again, right? His return is certain. And so just as sure as Christ sat in front of his disciples on that day, partaking of the supper and so on, he will once again sit with them and enjoy the supper in its fullness when he returns. That's the promise. That supper is going to be a memoriam no longer a type. Now, I don't want you to confuse the supper that's going on here with the marriage supper of the Lamb. Those are separate. Okay, you can read about that in Revelation 19, 9. But the marriage supper of the Lamb is actually going to take place between Christ and His church during the time of the tribulation, that seven-year period. And that is actually represented by the parable of the ten virgins, if you'd like to do a study on that in Matthew 25. But moving on to verse 17. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. So this cup here, it actually has nothing to do with the Lord's Supper yet. Okay, he's not there yet. So this cup is concluding the Passover, the very last Passover, verse 18. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Now, take special note here. Christ did not drink of this cup. What did he do? He divided it. He divided it among his disciples. Now, historically, there were four cups that were passed at the Passover dinner. The first cup was called the cup of sancti sanctification. The second cup was called the cup of deliverance. The third cup was the cup of redemption. And the fourth cup was called the cup of praise or the Hallel cup. Hallel is Hebrew for praise. Now, I'm going to elaborate on this just to a bit more in, in a second, but in, at least I'll share my opinion on what I think is going on. But Christ was entering into this time of suffering and sorrow now, but his joy had not yet come. For example, Hebrews 12, 2 says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Exactly. Psalm 30, verse 5 for his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. You see, Christ must endure the wrath of the Father toward our sin before he can then again realize the fullness of joy back in the Father's presence. But make no mistake about it. Included within our Savior's joy was his sacrifice for you and his sacrifice for me. What does the word say? For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Amen. So now begins the implementation, if you will, of this new covenant in the blood of Christ. And in verses 19 and 20, Christ is going to give us the explanation of it. But again, verse 18 marks the end of the last Passover. Okay, This is the last Passover that will ever be recognized by God the Father. Why? 
because soon his own spotless lamb, his own son will be sacrificed for the sins of the world, which will necessarily fulfill all of the demands of the law. So starting with verse 19, we begin to see the institution of the Lord's Supper. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So now believers, we continue to partake in the Lord's Supper to remember the sacrifice of Christ, right? To remember the fact that we have been set free from our sin, just as the the Jews continue to celebrate Passover in remembrance of being set free from Egypt. But the symbolism here is is fascinating. Um, You think of the bread. It says he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them. This would have been matzah bread. Of course, it was unleavened bread. It had no yeast in it um, because leaven in scriptures is, is representative of sin. And Christ, of course, would be and always was without sin. But this bread, matzah bread, had to be beaten flat. It had to be bruised, if you will. It had to be beaten flat. And then there were holes that were pierced into this bread. Isaiah 53, 5 says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And then in Psalm 22, 16, we see David writing, For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. David prophetically writing about crucifixion hundreds of years before it even existed. They pierced his hands and feet. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, our Lord Jesus Christ was bruised for our iniquities. He was pierced for our transgressions. And ultimately, he was given to us like this bread at no cost to us whatsoever. Christ Jesus, the bread of life given to us that we might have eternal life in him. Verse 20. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So notice here, this cup was taken when? After supper, right? So the first cup after the supper was traditionally, as far as I understand it, I'm not Jewish, but as far as I understand it, I've only been to uh, two Seder dinners and I don't remember much about either one. So I'm doing this based on research, okay? It's my understanding. The first cup taken after supper was the third cup, the cup of redemption. So after you would say grace, you would take this third cup of redemption Christ had given thanks in verse 19, and here in verse 20, after supper, he takes a cup. So now we see the new covenant being established in the blood of Christ. Christ is our cup of redemption. So you see, he's going to soon drink the full wrath of the Father toward our sin. So the focus has now shifted from Egypt to the freedom of from sin. It's shifted from freedom from slavery of man to freedom from slavery from your own sin. All those who believe in Christ are no longer slaves to their own sin. They are no longer in bondage, if you will, to sin. They are set free. They are covered in the righteousness of Christ 
by his blood. That's the third cup that Christ did not drink. We'll talk about that in a minute. There's still another cup left, though, and that's the cup of praise. That's the cup of Hallel. Okay. Now, I personally think, again, this is my opinion, so take it for what it's worth, but I believe this cup will be drink, drank, celebrated, if you will, in his coming kingdom. In other words, I think that Christ drank the cup of sanctification and the cup of deliverance, the first two cups, with his disciples at the Passover meal. I think that's when that happened. But he passed on the last two cups, the cup of redemption and the cup of praise. Because why? Well, because one, he became our cup of redemption through his cross, didn't he? See, I believe Christ drank the cup of redemption on his cross. In fact, some of the final words that we hear from Christ are, I thirst. And then what happened? He was given sour wine. Christ drank that cup of redemption on his cross. That's my opinion. Therefore, I also believe that he's going to drink this cup of praise with you and me, with all of the believers at his second coming when the king of glory comes and rules and reigns on the entire earth. And he's going to be receiving praise from people from all around the world for a thousand years. Just imagine this. Imagine the Hallel Psalms. Psalm 113 through 118 being memorized and sung collectively all around the world from saints everywhere. How beautiful would that be? Man. Now, again, I've I've given you some opinion for sure. So do with it what you want. Study it out. Come to your own conclusion for sure. But I just think it's a beautiful thought and it's worthy of our time. But when you think of communion here, when you think of the Lord's Supper, think of it as fellowship, koinonia, communion. Okay, the bread and the wine, they were representatives of his body and his blood. They were types. Remember, Christ had not yet suffered yet, okay, when he instituted the supper. He had not yet suffered, and therefore, it would be ridiculous for us to assume that these elements were in any way whatsoever changed into the actual body or the actual blood of Christ. Okay, so I say that to let you know very clearly that we do not at Community Church adhere to the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation. We reject that. That's where they believe that the bread literally becomes the body of Christ. They believe the blood literally becomes the blood of Christ. And and I just got to tell you, folks, Christ is not teaching cannibalism here, okay, in any way. Jews were forbidden to eat meat with blood in it, okay? But there is a sense here where we need to realize that at the Lord's Supper, we should come with this understanding that I do need Christ in me, okay? I need this idea when I come into fellowship with Christ that, Lord, I am emptying emptying myself out. I come to you with nothing so that you will fill me with yourself. I need to be filled up with Christ. I need to have perfect fellowship with you, Lord. And the only way that that happens is if you fill me up. Paul says, be filled with the Spirit in Ephesians 5.18. Moving on to verse 21. But behold, the hand of the betrayer is with me on the table. So here we see that Judas was there at the dinner. Okay. In verse 20, that word you that Christ used whenever he said the cup 
is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. That word you in the Greek, it's a plural pronoun. Okay, it's plural. So what does that tell us? It tells us that Christ shed his blood for Judas too. That's what it tells us. And I think that's important because these verses, among many other verses in the Bible, make very strong arguments for what is known as the doctrine of unlimited atonement. It means simply that Christ shed his blood for everyone, every man, woman, boy, and girl, even for those who would reject him, even for those who he, know, who he knew would reject him, rather. So think about it like this. Peter said it very plainly, 2 Peter 2.1. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Listen to this. Even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. And so all of that to say, the Bible teaches, in my opinion, and this is the stance of our church, but it teaches that Christ died for every man, woman, boy, and girl, that the atonement is unlimited. There is no one outside of his reach or his love or his desire to save, okay? But the application of the atonement is particular. So, okay, the availability, it's unlimited. The atonement is there. Christ died for everyone, but the application is particular in that it is only applied to those who come to Christ by grace through faith in him. That's it. So what else can we learn here? I want to give you a little application because Something else we notice in this verse. Judas's hand was on the table with Christ, but his heart was nowhere near Christ. His hand was on the table. So guys, we've got to guard against going through the motions, don't we? We're not practicing religion here. We're talking about an authentic, genuine relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, and we cannot go through the motions and have that. We need to understand that believers and betrayers often sit at the same table. Judas's hand was there, but his heart was nowhere near Christ. The Bible tells us in Matthew 13, 30, that the wheat and the tares, they grow up together, don't they? Jesus in Matthew 7 warned us, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Very sobering, very scary words. What I'm trying to say is we have to be careful to notice something here. And and what we're trying to notice is how close people can actually come to the kingdom of God and still miss it. How close they can come, but not get in. Again, there's no reason to believe that Judas didn't preach the gospel. There's no reason to believe that Judas didn't even prophesy at some point or do any number of miracles that all of the other disciples had done. We're talking about for the last three plus years, guys. Three, three and a half years. Yet when the hour of Christ had come, Judas was found out to be a traitor, a fraud. When it came time to actually commune with Christ, to fellowship with him, to enter into this new covenant with him, the fellowship of his suffering through his body and his blood, Judas said, I'm out. That's too far. I'm out. His heart was exposed, wasn't it? So where am I going to be found in the hour of Christ's return? Where will I be found? My hand might be on the table, but where is my heart? That's the question. I might go through the motions. 
I might do church. I might do churchy things. I might say churchy things. I might even do it for an extended period of time. But what effect has that had on my heart? Notice how close people can come to the kingdom and still miss it. Verse 22. And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Amen. Guys, the redemptive plan of God will take place and it will happen exactly on time, precisely in the way that God has determined for it to happen. All of Christ's dealings, every one of them could be considered divine appointments. It's never by chance. It's never by accident. All those who sought to betray Christ this entire time only played perfectly into his plan of redemption. You see, God will often use people, even in their own rebellion, to do things like free slaves from Egypt. He will do things, he will use people who are are against him, who are rebelling against him to accomplish his will. We've seen it with Pharaoh. He used Pharaoh to free the slaves. He's using Judas in his rebellion here to make his way to the cross. Why? So that we can be free from our sin. But I want you to know that both Pharaoh and Judas could have done otherwise. They had an option. I like how Wearsby explains it. He says, God in his sovereignty had determined that his son would be betrayed by a friend. But divine foreknowledge does not destroy human responsibility or accountability. Judas made each decision freely and would be judged accordingly, even though he still fulfilled the decree of God. Amen. Exactly right. Listen to how Jesus said it. If you don't think Judas had an option. Matthew 26, 24, woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. You see, one of the glaring indicators of Judas's own will to betray Christ is that after he had already made the deal to betray Christ, after he had already made that deal, he still had the gall to sit at the table. After Jesus said, one of y'all are going to betray me, Judas still had the gall to sit there, having already made the deal, saying, Rabbi, is it I? <laughs> of course, Jesus told him, you have said it. So let's be careful to learn the lesson here, guys. It would be better for me to have not ever been born than to knowingly and willfully betray Christ. Let me say it this way. Every time I hear and reject the gospel, every time, every time I hear the gospel and reject it, I am betraying Christ. I've got to be careful with that. You see, it's worth noting here when Judas revealed himself as the betrayer. It was after Christ had revealed that he would give up his body. That's when that happened. Which means, you know what? There's no longer any uh, hope of Jesus, of, of Jesus rather leading a revolution out there, is there? He'd already said he's going to give up his body. There's no more worry or fear from the people. No more uh, having to worry about uh, this overthrow of Rome or whatever. In other words, he was now free to move in without fear. Judas was. What an example of our society today. Cowardly people seem to be willing to trade so many things 
for personal salvation. It's out of fear. 30 pieces of silver. You know how much that was? It's about six weeks salary. 30 pieces. What a small price to pay for a soul. What a small price to give in exchange for your soul. Verse 23. Then they began to question among themselves which of them it would be or which of them it was who would do this thing. They're wondering who would betray Christ. Did you see that? This is where it gets real for you and me. We need to pay attention to verse 23. Every single one of the disciples, every one of them sensed somehow this certain amount of capability to betray Christ. Look at what it says. Then they like the rest of them, begin to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. They recognized in their own heart this ability to betray Christ. They didn't even know. Maybe it's me. Maybe I'm the betrayer. It tells us a couple things. Judas didn't necessarily stand out as a betrayer. It tells us that also they knew in their own heart they could easily become one. Guys, each and every believer is only one step away from sin. That's all. Every one of us, we have to understand that. We're all fully capable of betraying our Lord Jesus Christ. We have that in us. We have that ability. We're all fully capable of that. So I guess my encouragement for you is stay in fellowship with Christ. Stay in communion with Christ. This is not something we do consistently. We're talking about relationship. Religion says do this consistently. A relationship says do this constantly. Constantly commune with the Lord Jesus Christ. Stay in fellowship with him. Stay in fellowship with your heavenly father in the spirit and through the son so that you can enjoy the fullness of the fruit of a surrendered life to Christ so that you can stay humbly and safely under the lordship of Jesus Christ through his body that was broken and through his blood that was shed for your soul. Mm. Guys, Judas traded his soul for six weeks salary. But Jesus Christ gave his life for you. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for this time in your word. We thank you for this passage of scripture. Thank you for allowing us to enter into communion with you through the body and the blood of our Savior. Lord, thank you for making a way home to the Father, for providing us an opportunity to be forgiven from the bondage of our sin, through the blood of your cross. Thank you, Lord, for absorbing the punishment, the full wrath of the Father toward our sin through your bruised body, your body that was broken for us. We know your bones were not broken. We know that. In fulfillment of prophecy, no bones were broken. But your body was bruised. Your body was broken in that, as Isaiah tells us, your visage was marred more than any man which tells us that at the end of your beatings, you were basically, if not fully, unrecognizable. Thank you for that. I don't deserve that. 
in no way would I ever deserve that. But Lord, I thank you for providing that atonement for me so that I can be free, so that I can know you, that I can have an abundant life in Christ each and every day from here on out until you take me home to live forever in glory. All of this, all of this communion is made possible by you, Lord, and it's freely given, it's freely offered to those who would accept it by faith. And so I pray that if anyone hearing this message today has not surrendered their life, has not turned from their sin and trusted in Christ by faith, that they would do that right now, believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died on the cross for our sins and rose again so that we could have hope resurrection, hope, eternal life in him. For the rest of us as believers, Lord, help us to not go in and out of communion and in and out of fellowship. And no, Lord, help us to be constantly in fellowship, constantly communing with you. By your grace, in your spirit, through your blood. There's nothing else worth doing. There's nothing worth, there's nothing out there in this world worth breaking fellowship with you over. Nothing. So Lord, help me to die to myself every day, to reject my flesh. Wholly reject my flesh. That I might stay in communion with you. Please use our church Use us, Lord, to reach this community for Christ. Help us to ditch religion for an authentic relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Help us to take the message of the gospel to this area. Help us, Lord, to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. I know I need it. But would you continue to bless us, Lord, that we might make much of our Savior in this community for your glory and in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.